0: Good morning. It's a privilege to be before you all this morning to bring God's word. I want to begin by posing a question to you. What can man do in order to please God and be saved? Or to ask this question another way. How can man's wrong standing be changed to right standing? For God. This is the question that we will be addressing this morning as we go through our passage. Now, before that, there was a man, Erwin Berlin. He's considered one of the greatest songwriters in American history. He composed a song titled Anything You Can Do for a 1946 Broadway musical. The song is a duet with one male and one female singer who attempt to outdo each other in complicated tasks. This song sets the scene for a contest between both singers. Now during the song, both singers are playfully arguing about who can sing higher, who can sing softer, who can hold a longer note, and both boast of their accomplishments and their abilities such as living on bread and cheese. And as the song goes on, one singer counters the other's arguments of who he is and what he can do. And its most memorable lines are, Anything you can do, I can do better. I can do anything better than you. No, you can't. Yes, I can. No, you can't. Yes, I can. No, you can't. Yes, I can. Yes, I can. And it continues, anything you can be, I can be greater. Sooner or later, I'm greater than you. No, you're not. Yes, I am. No, you're not. Yes, I am. Yes, I am. And the song continues. And although both go back and forth, there's one thing that they can't do. And that is, neither can bake a pie. While these lyrics make for an entertaining song, they serve as a reminder of man's pride. There's a difference between the kind of pride that God hates and the kind kind that we feel when we do something to the best of our abilities. The pride that God hates is rooted in self-righteousness, which is sin. Psalm 10.4 shows us that the, the proud are so into themselves that they do not seek God. In that psalm we read, in the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. So we see that pride blinds people so that they don't see their need for God. Pride is so simple because it gives man credit for the things that God, it gives man credit for the things that God has done. In other words, it attempts to rob God of His glory and keep it for oneself. And so this is where our wrong standing with God comes from. The Bible says that in the beginning, God created everything that exists, including man. And after creating man, God planted a garden and placed man in that garden to represent Him and to enjoy the good works of His hands. God made man morally good and upright, but man fell from this righteousness when he rebelled against this good and loving and holy and righteous creator when he when he disobeyed his command. God graciously gave man, Adam, the tree in the garden as a reminder of his dependence on God. That is, that Adam was created to be under God, by joyfully submitting to his righteous rule. With that reminder, God also gave Adam a warning. The warning was, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So man willingly decided to disobey, and thus rejected God, his rule, and declared his independence. In essence, they took God's glory and kept it for themselves. Rather than worshipping Him, they worshipped themselves. And this, my friends, is treason and is punishable by death, just as God warned in the garden. So this provides the context for the question that I opened with. It shows us how man went from being righteous and acceptable to sinful criminals. Before a holy God, and since since then, man has been looking for a way to make himself right before God. Man has been looking for an answer to this question: How can we be made right before this right and holy, before this righteous and holy God? And the Bible says that this is our greatest problem. So, our main point this morning is. That man's only hope for being made right with God is found in Christ alone. Man's only hope for being made right with God is found in Christ alone. And Jesus illustrates that to answer this question. So my aim this morning is to show that we are sinners and that there's nothing we can do to save ourselves. Instead, salvation comes by trusting in Christ alone. And so if you're taking notes this morning, the outline comes in the form of three observations and applications along the way. So with that being said, let's turn to our passage. It's found in Luke 18, verses 9 through 14. And if you're using one of the Black Pew Bibles in front of you, it's found on page 877. This is the word of the Lord. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, and a Pharisee, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers. Or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now our passage this morning is made up of a few verses, but the implications are enormous and extremely important. Here we find that a crowd of people is following Jesus, and in verse 9, Jesus directs his attention to a specific group of people and tells them a parable. Now, parables deal with everyday life. They use minimal details and present deep spiritual truths in simple ways. In our passage, Jesus tells a parable of two men that went up to the temple to pray. These two men, who offered two different prayers, led to two different answers in God's eyes. So the first observation I want to draw your attention to is the two men. Jesus tells this parable to Pharisees who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Verse 10 reads, Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. So here we find the first man, or religious man, the Pharisee. In order to understand what Jesus is teaching, we must understand what these men were known for. Pharisees were known as the maximum representatives of religiosity in Israel. They were well-respected men and were held in high esteem because of their morality. It was said that if there were two men that deserved to go to heaven... It would have to be Pharisees and the scribes. Those who were in charge of copying copying God's law. Now in the Gospels, we find that the harshest rebukes that Jesus makes are always to these two men. And we see that, or some of that in this passage. There in verse 9, we read, Jesus told this parable to expose the Pharisees' error, which was that, they trusted in themselves that they were righteous. With a few exceptions, like Nicodemus, these men were characterized by pride, arrogance, and hypocrisy. These men clung to the letter of the law, but didn't understand the spirit of the law. A Pharisee could feel hatred for someone, but their conscience would not convict them of it because in their eyes they had not murdered physically. They could lust over the neighbor's wife and not feel any remorse because they had not physically committed the act. This is why we find that Jesus came to clarify this. And for example, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus taught, You have heard that it is said of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And he also said, you have heard that it he was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So the Pharisees carefully fulfilled the rituals of the law but failed to keep the true meaning of it, which takes place in the heart. It has to do with one's heart posture. The tithes and dietary laws of the Old Testament were important to them, so important that they would carefully calculate ways not to break the law. And while doing this, they skipped the most important part, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Their main focus was on the exterior because to them, what was more important was their reputation. The Pharisees in the parable, well, yeah, the Pharisee in the parable was most likely known for his exterior acts, for his religious behavior. And at the same time, we read that there was another man in the temple. This leads us to the second man, the repulsive man. In the eyes of men, at least. Verse 10 says, Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Jesus wisely chose both examples in his parable. So who were the tax collectors? Well, for one, tax collectors were men who were disliked for many reasons. You can imagine, who would want to pay money to a government that oppresses them? And in this case, the Jews were being oppressed by the Romans, and they were forced to pay these taxes to them. And tax collectors had the job of coming to collect those taxes. Tax collectors in this time were Jews who worked for the Roman government. And these tax collectors were seen as traitors to their own people. Instead of being against the Romans, they were for the Romans. And they were for themselves (coughs) at the same time. These men were also extortioners and were known for cheating the people they collected money from. Because they collected extra, more than what was required. So these tax collectors were hated by the Jewish people. (laughs) So now in the temple, we find two moral extremes of society. We find a Pharisee and a tax collector. So just as the Pharisee Pharisee represented a moral life, the tax collector was seen as a repulsive man. Man. And they were so hated in Jesus' day that they were often identified with the prostitutes. If there were any two people that deserved to go to hell, that deserved God's punishment, surely it was the tax collectors and the prostitutes. So here we have two different men, a Pharisee and a tax collector. Both of them found themselves in the temple at the same time, apparently both of them went up into the temple to do the same thing, to pray. Just as Jesus presents two different men, he also presents two different prayers. So the second observation to note is the two prayers. The first prayer is a boastful prayer. And we see that in verse 11. We read the Pharisee Standing by himself, prayed thus. Now, is there something wrong with praying on our feet? Certainly not. We do it here. Whoever leads the service does so. Standing. In Scripture, we find godly men that prayed this way for different reasons. And in this context, Jesus wants to show us that, um, he wants to show us something, and he wants to show us that the Pharisee stood by himself. We're not told where in the temple he was standing, but verse 13 helps to give us a clue. It says, but the tax collector, standing far off. What this implies is that the Pharisee was standing near to something. The question to ask then is, near what? It's possible that this Pharisee was standing near the most holy place, the sanctuary, while the tax collector was standing far from the sanctuary. Now the sanctuary was a special place where God's presence was manifested in the Old Testament. The Pharisee was as close as possible to God's presence on his feet not humble. His self-righteousness allowed him to draw near to God's presence on his feet. But Jesus doesn't want to focus specifically on his feet. He wants to focus on this man's heart posture. In Isaiah 6, we read of Isaiah's vision of the Lord. Isaiah had a vision of the Lord sitting upon a throne where he was high and lifted up where there were seraphim that stood above him, each having six wings. And Isaiah describes this as um, two uh, using two wings to cover his face, two to cover his feet, and two to fly. And each seraphim would say to, to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And then we find Isaiah's response which was one of reverence and humility. He said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. In contrast, we find that the Pharisees' prayer was a self-gratifying prayer. At the beginning of his his prayer, he mentioned God. But internally, he was not taking God's presence into account. (laughs) We don't find a word of praise or confession of sin in his prayer. This man's prayer was a prayer of confession. But the confession was that he was satisfied in himself. The Pharisee was happy with who he was and the things that he did. In other words, his heart posture before God, the holy God, his creator, his heart posture was wrong. Verse 11 says that his prayer was, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. We could rephrase his prayer It might sound something like, God, what a great person I am. You were right in choosing me because I'm not like others. Now, I know it might be a little difficult to find someone who would dare to express himself this way in public, but many people do this internally. Many suppose that they will be welcomed into God's presence because of who they are. <clears throat> when sharing the gospel, it's not uncommon to hear people think that they're going to heaven because of the things that they do. I was sharing the gospel with a man two nights ago and I was trying to help him see his sinfulness and I asked him, when you come before God to give an account of, what will you say that will make God give you access into heaven? And he said, oh, I'm a, I'm a good man. I love my wife. I provide for her. I pay my taxes. I don't hurt anyone. And so we find this kind of heart posture all over the place. Many will say, I'm not a bad person. I'm not a thief. Wherever I go, I try to do good to others. I go to church every Sunday. The Pharisee boasted in who he was. He was focusing on I am. You can notice how many times the word I appears there. And in his mind, God wouldn't overlook who he was. But he also boasted in what he did. In verse 12, he says, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. In other words, Lord, this must be enough to get me into heaven or to make me right with you. Because to him, it was not just about who he was, it was also about what he did. So his prayer would sound like There are many faithful men, but none come close to me. They don't do the things that I do. I never miss a Sunday service, I always give my tithes and offerings. And this is the kind of prayer that the Pharisee was offering. This is a man who believed that his acceptance before God came as a result of who he was and the things he did. In other words, salvation through his own effort. If you're visiting us today, you know yourself not to be a Christian, I want to ask you, how will you stand before God on judgment day? God says that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each may receive what is due for what he has done. And so on that day, how will you stand? Where's your trust? Are you trusting in your own good works? Are you trusting in who you are? Your job, your position, your accomplishments. Because that's what this Pharisee was doing. Now note how great a difference there is in the tax collector's prayer. This lead us this leads us to the second prayer, the humble prayer. Verse thirteen says, But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now this man kept his distance from the sanctuary. He felt so ashamed for his sins that he couldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven because he's, he knew that his, that his prayers were going before a holy and just and righteous God to the one who is infinitely just, to the one who does not leave the guilty unpunished. The tax collector had a guilty conscience because he understood his sinfulness. And this is the reason that he cried out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. In other words, this man was confessing, Lord, I agree with you. I have rebelled against you. Where you created me for your glory. To submit to you and to love you and to obey you. I haven't done that. I have not glorified you. I have glorified myself. I live for myself. I am king. This is the way that I have lived. Please. Please. Forgive me. I am guilty. And you are just in condemning me and giving me your wrath. This man did not come to God to say, God, I thank you that I'm not like other tax collectors. I tithe from the taxes that I collect. I actually make time to come to pray unlike those other tax collectors. He didn't say that. He came humbly before God acknowledging his condition before this righteous God. When this tax collector saw himself in the reflection of God's word, he could only cry out, God, have mercy on me. I beg you, please, please forgive me please don't give me what I deserve. I know my sins deserve it. Uh, your, your, your wrath. I've earned your wrath, but please forgive me. This is what it means that he cried out for mercy. He pleaded with God not to give him what he deserved. Now, if you're a Christian this morning, <laughs> Are you continuing in your trust and dependence on Christ? Is your understanding of your acceptance still on the only one who can save you? Or have you taken your eyes off of the Savior and placed them on the good gifts that come as a result of receiving salvation? This is a dangerous thing to do. Because the gospel not only gets us into right standing with God, but it keeps us in right standing with God. And it's all based on Jesus' work, His life, His death and resurrection. So you see, we find two men who offered two prayers and this leads us to our next observation we find two results in verse 14 we read I tell you this man went down to his house justified rather than the other we find that the tax collector went home justified and the Pharisee he didn't Verse 14 is where we find what Jesus said. The tax collector went home justified, not the Pharisee. But what did Jesus mean when he declared that the tax collector went to his house justified? In scripture, the word justification is always used in a legal context. It's used in a courtroom where someone who is accused of wrongdoing is declared just or innocent of wrongdoing. To justify is nothing other than to declare someone as not guilty or to declare someone as just. When someone is who is declared not guilty, he is seen as someone who, has, who is innocent of breaking the law, as one who has obeyed the law perfectly. Someone who has been justified cannot be sentenced for breaking the law but instead must be treated as innocent. Imagine someone going to court and presenting themselves before the judge, or before a judge, having all of the evidence just pointing against them, and then the judge saying, I find you innocent, lock him up for ten years. That doesn't make sense, right? Because when someone is declared innocent, one is also treated as innocent. And the punishment that was deserved is withheld. What Jesus is telling us in this parable is this tax collector was justified, he was declared innocent, not guilty in God's eyes. He came before God in the temple with all of his sins, condemning him, knowing that he was guilty, agreeing with God that he was guilty. But he left an innocent man, declared by the just judge. Now this leads us to one of those questions that many people ask. How is that possible that a holy and righteous judge can let the sinner go unpunished since when do judges let guilty people go a judge cannot justify a guilty person the bible says that God justifies the wicked without violating his justice on the basis of what well this is what the gospel is all about The answer to this question is the essence of the gospel. The gospel means good news. Do you know what the good news is? Because in order to understand the good news, we have to first understand the bad news. The bad news is that we're all guilty before God and we all deserve his wrath because we've all turned away. When Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. What that means is, you must love God perfectly every second of every minute of every hour of every day of every week of every year of your life perfectly without disobeying once and if you disobey once you're guilty of breaking all of God's commands so when the man that asked Jesus this question heard Jesus' response he said and who is my neighbor he missed the whole point what Jesus was trying to help him and us understand is that none of us have has done that we all fall short of the glory of God. And He came to fulfill the law. He came to do what was expected of us. God declares the sinner just based on the perfect righteousness of Christ, the Son of God, the one that became a man, yet was without sin. And it's in His righteousness, it's in the righteousness of Christ that we find our justification. His righteousness is deposited into the sinner's account, and this only comes by faith. What did this tax collector do? Well, he recognized his sinfulness. He recognized his wickedness. But at the same time, he clung to God's mercy and trusted in God's provision for his sins, which is found in Jesus This is why this man went home justified. Because what God does in justification is He takes Jesus' perfect righteousness and deposits it in the sinner's account. And this happens by faith alone. This way the sinner is forgiven and accepted. Not based on who he is, nor on what what he does. It's based solely on the work of Jesus Christ which is imputed to the believer and that's great news. 2 Corinthians 5:21 We read that for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus took on our sins while he credited credited us with his righteousness. Paul also writes in Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see how Jesus has come to fix this problem of how do we as sinners become acceptable before this righteous and holy God? As the Christmas holiday comes near, we should reflect on the fact that this Savior left His throne and came into this world and became like one of us. And He did what was expected of us, all so that He would save us at no cost to us. He taught, it is better to give than to receive. And he demonstrated that by giving himself. For he knew there was nothing that we could give him that would make us acceptable before him. So when a sinner believes in Jesus, he is declared just. And this is what we find in this text. This is the good news that the gospel proclaims. This is what the what the good news is about. This is what the good news um, that Julie's baptism will proclaim. That is that God has justified her. That He has declared her to be innocent before Him, and it's a gift that comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The biblical response is clear. We can only be made right with God by faith. We do not need to earn it. We can't earn it. God has provided a way for us to be made right with Him, and it's by faith alone. Sinners are justified by faith. Paul writes, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. No one will ever make it to heaven by their own works. I think about this sometimes. But when we get to heaven, everyone who is present Will have nothing to boast about. Anyone who asks the person next to them, Why are you here? That person will point to Christ and say, I'm not here because of what I did, I'm here because of what he did. And as you ask the person next to you, Why are you here? I'm here because of him. Why are you here? I'm here because of him. In heaven, Christ gets all the glory because it's His work that earns our salvation. He took the wrath that we deserve because we rebelled against a holy God. Christ lived the perfect life. Christ obeyed the Father's law perfectly. He was the innocent one who died for the wicked. And all of these blessings are available to sinners through faith. Now I want to make it clear that faith is not what saves us. We are not saved because we have faith in Christ. Because faith is only the means through which we're connected to Christ. If I were to eat, if I had a meal in front of me, the fork is not what would satisfy my hunger. The fork would only be the means that I would use to get the food into my mouth. Faith does not save us. Faith is only the means or the instrument through which we are connected to Christ and receive His perfect work through which we're in his righteousness. It's all about Christ. It's all about what he has done. The Pharisee in this parable trusted in his faithfulness and in his work. The tax collector was conscious of his wickedness and knew that if God would accept him, it would have to be on the basis of of someone else's work, not on his own because he had nothing to offer. He knew that no one could be justified by their own works. This only happens when our conscience comes to the conviction (coughs) that we have sinned against God. And Paul makes it very clear In his letters that none of us are righteous. So I want to ask you. Do you understand that your sin is personally against your creator? Our creator gave us life. He created us for His glory, but we have all rebelled. Our offenses are against Him. How will you respond? There's great news. God has provided a way for you and for myself to be saved, and that's in His Son, Jesus Christ. He became man and died for us. The tax collector acknowledged his sin and turned to God for forgiveness. And we could almost hear Jesus' words as He says, Go and sin no more. Your faith has saved you. The man had nothing to offer other than his sin. He was convicted of his sin, so much so that he couldn't lift his eyes to heaven. And this man was declared righteous before God. This man received Jesus' righteousness as a gift so that the problem would be solved. He would be accepted before God. And in verse 14 it says, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the point of the parable. Men are called to humble themselves before God. We are called to humble ourselves before God. We're called to acknowledge our sin. But not only that, we're called to trust in Christ's righteousness, in Christ's, And in Christ alone, the incarnate God that lived the perfect life and died on the cross to pay for our debts. Contrary to popular belief, Jesus Jesus did not come to make us rich financially. Although that might be something that in his will, if he desires, he blesses us to use that to bless others and to fulfill his will. Jesus came to save us from our sin, to make us right with God, to make us acceptable before God. That's what Jesus says. He says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So praise God that God is a merciful God who shows mercy to sinners who acknowledge their sins and their rebellion because that's what he did with this tax collector. God forgave this man who came with empty hands. God called him to come and buy without money. And this man came and receive the gift that Christ offers. Now let's conclude. What can man do in order to please God and be saved? Man must turn to Christ and Christ alone and trust in Him. God has taken action to provide the way for man to be restored to right relationship with Him. His way for salvation from the just judgment that we all deserve is is coming. And His way for, for salvation is not by our works, not because of who we are or because of what we do. It's because of who Christ is and what He has done. It's a gift of God to all that humbly acknowledge Him. Jesus told this parable to help his audience and to tell us here today that he has come to seek and save sinners if we turn to him in faith and repentance. So rather than joining Urban Berlin in his song, Anything I Can Do, Anything You Can Do, I Can Do Better, we should turn and sing the tune of Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. Jesus is my life. Or in Christ alone, my hope is found. He, He is my light, my strength, my cornerstone. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you and we praise you as a merciful God. We praise you that although we deserve to die, we deserve your wrath. We deserve to be separated from you forever you have displayed your love for us in that you offer a way for us to be forgiven through your son Jesus Christ we praise you that even though we rebelled against you and we all went astray you took it upon yourself to come and look for us, to come and offer salvation to those who weren't looking for you we acknowledge that It is by Christ's work alone on the cross that any of us can find right standing with you. We confess that we're tempted to trust in our own works and we're tempted to boast in the things that we do and who we are. We confess that we take your glory for ourselves and we live for ourselves rather than living for you. I pray that by your Spirit, you would help us to see our need for Christ. That you would help us to see that the things that we do in this world cannot save us. That salvation is only found in the great Savior, Jesus Christ. I pray that as a church, we would live in a way that reflects the mercy that you offer to sinners. As we are a congregation that's made up of sinners who have been found. I pray that we would extend the mercy that you've extended to us. That we would go out and share the gospel. So that others might repent and believe in Christ and be saved. It's in Jesus' name that we ask these things. Amen.